Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Haiva Yulua. Haiva Yulua. Which I have no idea I've done that right. But it is Finnish for Merry Christmas. Ah. Merry Christmas. Although it really should be Happy New Year by this stage because I think we've got yes. to New Year's Eve, haven't we? It's New Year's Eve, isn't it, um, everyone? Uh, how exciting. 2019 finally exits the scene. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. And we. And we cruise into the third decade of the 21st century. How extraordinary. Anyway, we're continuing our series of um, reading extracts from our books, uh, getting near to the near to the end, but um, Al, what's on the menu today? Well, I mean, it's a novel, but um, I think this is one of the all-time great war novels, mm-hmm. um, it's ca- which is Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Oh, you love this book, don't you? I absolutely love this book. And I, I first read this for A level, because we were doing for A level, we did we did. Um, That's quite more than a progressive. Yeah, level, yeah, isn't we, it? we were doing. We, 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 yes, it was at the time because it's you know it's a '60s book and it's got the yeah. it's got the cut up narrative thing, which at the time when he did it, where you know the narrative isn't in chronological order at all. And there's a there's a thing hanging over it all that's revealed at the end, which yeah. I think if you read novels now is like entirely standard and almost like yeah whatever. All oh, right, so that was your big secret, was it? <laughs> um, um, uh, uh, but but. But what's brilliant about this is, and it's a, and it is a book from the sixties, so it's got sixties things going on in it, and it was a hit because of the Vietnam War. But the but the thing the 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 thing about this book is it's very 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 funny, and it's very very much. I know it's a, we've read lots of a couple of these where it's been an a novel written by someone who experienced the thing, like the cauldron right at the start of this, the Zeno book. Heller was a bomb aimer in the Mediterranean, flying missions over Italy, bombing bridges at Bologna and stuff like that, which is one of the central comic incidents, the book where he moves the bomb line on the map. This all happened, you know, this may be a novel and it may be a comic novel and it may be a satire and all that. But it's real. This all really happened to him. Yeah. Every single, you know, every single bit of it. And particularly the core subject of this book, which is how on earth do you deal with the madness of, of, of what you're being, what's being asked of you and how do you, how do you get in a plane every day where you've got to kill people and you you could easily be killed. And how do you do that? And how do you all get along in that situation? Which is the core subject of this book. And it's, it's, it's brilliant. And I hope, I hope this bit, um, having sold this as a funny book, I hope you find this bit funny. The squadron's doctor, Dr. Nika, has been earning flight pay by signing up for flights that he hasn't been on. A plane crashes and his name's on the manifest, so he's officially dead. Chapter 31, Mrs. Danika. 
When Colonel Cathcart learned that Dr Nika too had been killed in Watts Plain, he increased the number of missions to 70. The first person in the squadron to find out that Dr Nika was dead was Sergeant Towser, who had been informed earlier by the man in the control tower that Dr Nika's name was down as a passenger on the pilot's manifest McWatt had filed before taking off. Sergeant Towser brushed away a tear and struck Dr Nika's name from the roster of squadron personnel. With lips still quivering, he rose and trudged outside reluctantly to break the bad news to Gus and Wes, discreetly avoiding any conversation with Dr Nika himself as he moved by the flight surgeon's slight sepulchral figure roosting despondently on his stool in the late afternoon sunlight between the orderly room and the medical tent. Sergeant Towser's heart was heavy. Now he had two dead men on his hands. Mud, the dead man in Yasarian's tent, who wasn't even there, and Dr Nika, the new dead man in the squadron, who most certainly was there and gave every indication of proving a still thornier administrative problem for him. Gus and Wes listened to Sergeant Towser with looks of stoic surprise and said not a word about their bereavement to anyone else until Dr Nika himself came in about an hour afterward to have his temperature taken for the third time that day and his blood pressure checked. The thermometer registered a half degree lower than his usual subnormal temperature of 96.8. Dr Nika was alarmed. The fixed vacant wooden stares of his two enlisted men were even more irritating than always. God damn it, he expostulated politely in an uncommon excess of exasperation. What's the matter with you two men anyway? It just isn't right for a person to have a low temperature all the time and walk around with a stuffed nose. Dr. Nika emitted a glum, self-pitying sniff and strolled disconsolately across the tent to help himself to some aspirin and sulphur pills and paint his own throat with argyrol. His downcast face was fragile and forlorn as a swallow's and he rubbed the back of his arms rhythmically. Just look how cold I am right now. You're sure you're not holding anything back? You're dead, sir, one of his two enlisted men explained. Dr. Nika jerked his head up quickly with resentful distrust. What's that? You're dead, sir, repeated the other. That's probably the reason you always feel so cold. That's right, sir. You've probably been dead all this time and we just didn't detect it. What the hell are you both talking about? Dr. Nika cried shrilly with a surging, petrifying sensation of some onrushing, unavoidable disaster. It's true, sir, said one of the enlisted men. Your records show that you went up in McWatt's plane to collect some flight time. You didn't come down in a parachute, so you must have been killed in the crash. That's right, sir, said the other. You ought to be glad you got any temperature at all. Dr. Nika's mind was reeling in confusion. Have you both gone crazy, he demanded. I'm going to report this whole insubordinate incident to Sergeant Towser. Sergeant Towser's the one who told us about it, said either Gus or Wes. The War Department's even going to notify your wife. Dr. Nika yelped and ran out of the medical tent to remonstrate with Sergeant Towser, who edged away from him with repugnance and advised Dr. Nika to remain out of sight as much as possible until some decision could be reached relating to the disposition of his remains. Gee, I guess he really is dead, grieved one of his enlisted men in a low, respectful voice. I'm going to miss him. He was a pretty wonderful guy, wasn't he? Yeah, he sure was, mourned the other. But I'm glad the little fuck is gone. I was getting sick and tired of taking his blood pressure all the time. Mrs. Danica, Dr. Danica's wife, was not glad that Dr. Danica was gone and split the peaceful Staten Island night with woeful shrieks of lamentation when she learned by War Department telegram that her husband had been killed in action. Women came to comfort her, and their husbands paid condolence calls and hoped inwardly that she would soon move to another neighbourhood and spare them the obligation of continuous sympathy. The poor woman was totally distraught for almost a full week. Slowly, heroically, she found the strength to contemplate a future filled with dire problems for herself and her children. Just as she was growing resigned to her loss, the postman rang with a bolt from the blue, 
a letter from overseas that was signed with her husband's signature and urged her frantically to disregard any bad news concerning him. Mrs Danica was dumbfounded. The date on the letter was illegible. The handwriting throughout was shaky and hurried, but the style resembled her husband's and the melancholy, self-pitying tone was familiar, although more dreary than usual. Mrs Danica was overjoyed and wept irrepressibly with relief and kissed the crinkled, grubby tissue of V-mail stationery a thousand times. She dashed a grateful note off to her husband, pressing him for details, and sent a wire informing the War Department of its error. The War Department replied touchily that there had been no error and that she was undoubtedly the victim of some sadistic and psychotic forger in her husband's squadron. The letter to her husband was returned, unopened, stamped, killed in action. Mrs Danica had been widowed cruelly again, but this time her grief was mitigated somewhat by a notification from Washington that she was sole beneficiary of her husband's $10,000 GI insurance policy, which amount was obtainable by her on demand. The realisation that she and the children were not faced immediately with starvation brought a brave smile to her face and marked the turning point in her distress. The Veterans Administration informed her by mail the very next day that she would be entitled to pension benefits for the rest of her natural life because of her husband's demise and to a burial allowance for him of $250. A government cheque for $250 was enclosed. Gradually, inexorably, her prospects brightened. A letter arrived that same week from the Social Security Administration stating that, under the provisions of the Old Age and Survivors Insurance Act of 1935, she would receive monthly support for herself and her dependent children until they reached the age of 18, and a burial allowance of $250. With these government letters as proof of death, she applied for payment on three life insurance policies Dr. Nika had carried, with a value of $50,000 each. Her claim was honoured and processed swiftly. Each day brought new unexpected treasures. A key to a safe deposit box led to a fourth life insurance policy with a face value of $50,000 and to $18,000 in cash on which income tax had never been paid and need never be paid. A fraternal lodge to which he had belonged gave her a cemetery plot. A second fraternal organisation of which he'd been a member sent her a burial allowance of $250. His county medical association gave her a burial allowance of $250. The husbands of her closest friends began to flirt with her. Mrs Danica was simply delighted with the way things were turning out and had her hair dyed. Her fantastic wealth just kept piling up and she had to remind herself daily that all the hundreds of thousands of dollars she was acquiring were not worth a single penny without her husband to share this good fortune with her. It astonished her that so many separate organisations were willing to do so much to bury Dr Nika, who, back in Pinoza, was having a terrible time trying to keep his head above the ground and wondered with dismal apprehension why his wife did not answer the letter he'd written. He found himself ostracised in the squadron by men who cursed his memory foully for having supplied Colonel Cathcart with provocation to raise the number of combat missions. Records attesting to his death were pullulating like insect eggs and verifying each other beyond all contention. He drew no pay or PX rations and depended for life on the charity of Sergeant Towser and Milo, who both knew he was dead. Colonel Cathcart refused to see him, and Colonel Corn sent word through Major Danby that he would have Dr Nika cremated on the spot if he ever showed up at Group headquarters. Major Danby confided that Group was incensed with all flight surgeons because of Dr Stubbs, the busy-haired, baggy-chinned, slovenly flight surgeon in Dunbar's squadron, 
who was deliberately and defiantly brewing insidious dissension there by grounding all men with 60 missions on proper forms that were rejected by group indignantly with orders restoring the confused pilots, navigators, bombardiers and gunners to combat duty. Morale there was ebbing rapidly and Dunbar was under surveillance. Group was glad Dr Leaker had been killed and did not intend to ask for a replacement. Not even the chaplain could bring Dr Nika back to life under the circumstances. Alarm changed to resignation, and more and more Dr Nika acquired the look of an ailing rodent. The sacks under his eyes turned hollow and black, and he padded through the shadows fruitlessly like a ubiquitous spook. Even Captain Flume recoiled when Dr Nika sought him out in the woods for help. Heartlessly, Gus and Wes turned him away from their medical tent without even a thermometer for comfort, and then... Only then did he realise that, to all intents and purposes, he really was dead, and that he had better do something damn fast if he ever hoped to save himself. There was nowhere else to turn but to his wife, and he scribbled an impassioned letter begging her to bring his plight to the attention of the War Department, and urging her to communicate at once with his group commander, Colonel Cathcart, for assurances that, no matter what else she might have heard, it was indeed he, her husband, Dr Nika, who was pleading with her, and not a corpse or some imposter. Mrs Danica was stunned by the depth of emotion in the almost illegible appeal. She was torn with compunction and tempted to comply, but the very next letter she opened that day was sent from that same Colonel Cathcart, her husband's group commander, and began, Dear Mrs, Mr, Miss, R, Mr and Mrs Danica, Words cannot express the deep personal grief I experienced when your husband, son, father or brother was killed, wounded or reported missing in action. Mrs. Danica moved with her children to Lansing, Michigan and left no forwarding address. Well, thanks, Al, for that. I'm rightly one of the great classics and um, Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year!